Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Christine Benz tells retirees why they should start strategizing about their RMDs now. Russ Kinnell shares some names from his Fantastic Funds list. And Jason Kephart takes a closer look at target date funds from Vanguard, Fidelity, and T. Rowe Price. Let's get started. Here are Christine Benz and Susan Jabinski from Morningstar, Inc. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski for Morningstar. Retirees don't have to take their required minimum distributions until year-end, but Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance, Christine Benz, thinks it's a good time to begin strategizing about them. Christine, thanks for being here today. Susan, it's great to be here. Now, um, many of our retired viewers no doubt know what required minimum distributions are, but let's step back for a minute and define what RMDs are for those who might not be as familiar. Right. These are old hat for people who have been taking them for a while, but these are mandatory withdrawals that you're required to take from traditional tax-deferred accounts, that would be 401ks, 403bs, 457s, IRAs. Roth 401ks are also subject to required minimum distributions. The big category of tax-sheltered accounts that are not subject to required minimum distributions are Roth IRAs. But basically, these distributions need to begin once you uh, pass age 72. It used to be 70 and a half. Now, at least we're at a round number, (laughs) 72. And you need to take higher percentages of your portfolio as the years go by. So they start fairly low and then scale higher. So let's talk about a little bit about RMDs and timing. Is there a particular time of year that's better or worse to take your required minimum distribution? Well, not not really, because um, the required minimum distribution amount that you're required to take is based on the previous year-end balance. So for 2021 RMDs, it's based on whatever your balance was at the end of of 2020. So no amount of sort of finessing can reduce the taxes that you'll pay and the amount that you need to take out of your accounts. Retirees have different preferences about these matters. I know some retirees like to take them very early to ensure that they don't forget. Other retirees like to save them till later, perhaps to tie in with any sort of year-end portfolio review that they might like to do, and then to enjoy an additional year of uh, tax-deferred compounding on their money. So there are different uh, schools of thought, different ways of thinking about it, but there's really no one right approach. And you alluded to taxes on your RMDs, because yes. of course you will pay them. Um, what are some? Are there some tax strategies to keep in mind when you're thinking about taking your RMD? Well, potentially so. I mean, the the big category to consider in this realm is to consider the qualified charitable distribution. And that basically allows people who are older than 70 and a half, in the case of the QCD, to take uh, an amount out of their tax-deferred account and send it to the charity or charities of their choice, up to $100,000. And that amount that goes to charity escapes taxation, and it also lightens the balance that is eventually going to be subject to RMDs. So once you're subject to RMDs, that's really the single best strategy to consider. But you can do some strategizing in the pre-RMD years, particularly after you've retired but before RMDs have commenced. And oftentimes there's a little bit of a window if someone retires at 65 
between that age and 72. You could potentially consider doing some conversions to Roth during that period. And we said Roth IRAs are not subject to RMDs, so you could do conversions. You might also consider even accelerating your withdrawals during those years if you have a way to keep yourself in a lower tax bracket. So here's a good spot to get some tax advice from a tax advisor about how to proceed. But there are definitely some strategies that you can consider pre-RMD to lighten the tax load once RMDs commence, once you hit age 72. And you've also written about it and said before that it pays to be strategic about which accounts you take your RMDs from. Talk a little bit about that. Right. It really does, Susan. And I love the idea of retirees tying in the RMD process with their portfolio review, with their rebalancing process. So even though you have specific mandates about how much has to come out of your account and that you owe taxes on, there are no rules about which accounts you pull from and which specific investments you pull from. So right now, for example, a lot of retirees have highly appreciated equity assets that they might like to skinny down anyway. So as long as you take the correct amount from the right accounts, you can pick and choose where you pull those distributions from. So I think this is a great way to improve your portfolio, reduce its risk level, and also satisfy the IRS's rules. So, Christine, let's talk a little bit about the relationship between withdrawal rates and RMDs. What do you say to retirees who might think that their required minimum distribution might be more than what they really want as their targeted withdrawal rate? Right. This is a good and common question, and I'm always happy to hear from retirees who are being really conscious about making sure that they're not overwithdrawing. One thing I would say, though, is that the table that most people use to calculate their RMDs is pretty generous from the standpoint of ensuring that you're not overwithdrawing from, from those accounts. So specifically, it assumes that you have a spouse who is 10 years, roughly 10 years younger than you. Um, most of us do not, or many of us do not have spouses who are that much younger than us. So it gives us a little bit of a cushion to ensure that we're not over withdrawing. And then another key point is that even though RMDs are saying that your money needs to come out of your tax deferred accounts, there's nothing saying that you can't reinvest those funds elsewhere. So if you're uncomfortable with the withdrawal rate associated with your RMD for whatever reason, you can put the money into a taxable brokerage account. If you or your spouse have enough earned income to cover the amount to the contribution, you can even put that money into, an, into a Roth IRA. So there are a couple of workarounds if for whatever reason you decide you don't want to spend that money, but instead you want to keep it working in your portfolio. Well, Christine, thank you so much for your time today. It looks like any time is a good time to be thinking about RMDs. I think so. Thanks, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, Russ Kinnell from Morningstar Research Services discusses what makes a great fund. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Every year, Morningstar's director of research and editor of Morningstar Fund Investor, Russ Kinnell, identifies a set of about three dozen fantastic funds. He's here today to discuss what makes a fund fantastic and share a few names from the list. 
Thanks for joining me today, Russ. Glad to be here. So um, first, let's talk in broad strokes about this study that you do every year. You create this fantastic funds list. Why is this something you do annually? Yeah, the basic idea is with thousands of funds out there, uh, you can really set a high bar. So instead of screening on uh, dozens of, of, of tests, I think it's more important to uh, take the most important uh, tests, in other words, ones that are most predictive value, uh, and really raise the bar on those. Uh, if, you, if you do that uh, for my test, then you come out with a list somewhere between 20 and 50 each year. So it's a very select list. And how many made, made it through all the screens this year? This year was 37, so I'm calling it the thrilling 37. Oh, nice, okay. So now funds need to pass six specific screens to make it onto your list, and low expenses is one of those screens. How are you defining low expenses for purposes of this process? Uh, the cheapest quintile uh, of, of the category. So it's a, like I said, it's a high bar. I'm not gonna uh, make it an easy pass. So it's a, it's a tough test to get through. And then what are the other screens that funds must pass to make it onto the list? Yeah, so there's, uh, the fund has to have outperformed its benchmark over the manager's entire tenure, minimum of five years, but if the manager's been there 25 years, uh, we go 25 years. Uh, manager investment uh, in their own funds, over a million dollars. The fund has to be rated bronze or higher, uh, the parent has to be rated above average or high, um, and the risk, Morningstar risk, has to be uh, not high. So in other words, above average or lower. So we're screening out the, the highest risk funds because we know that uh, investors have a harder time with high risk funds. Well, those are some pretty high hurdles. Let's talk about a few of the funds that cross all of those hurdles. Um, in the large cap arena, one of the funds is Vanguard Equity Income. It qualifies as fantastic. Tell us a little bit about that fund. Uh, yeah, I think uh, when, when you think about a fund that's income oriented, it's important to remember that uh, the income you receive comes after expenses for the fund. And of course, Vanguard has uh, the cheapest uh, active equity income fund out there, but I also like the fact that it's, a, it's just a well-run fund. It doesn't go for the extreme yield. If you, if you chase yield too much, you can end up uh, with higher risk uh, companies that might not continue to pay that yield, but also very low growth. Uh, it's nice if you get income, you want a little capital appreciation potential because uh, then you can build that principle so that the income can grow. So it's just a really well-run fund. Uh, Wellington sub-advises two-thirds of the fund uh, and just a very steady, dependable fund. Um, and now more globally, Adagen Cox Global makes the list. What, what, how did it score there? Oh uh, yeah, um, Dodge and Cox has long uh, got a high parent rating and they always have low fees on their funds even when they're new. Um, this one puts together their domestic and foreign equity portfolios in a pretty concentrated uh, format. Uh, and just uh, Dodge and Cox, we, we love the stability of their management, the consistency of their value approach. Uh, it does have, have bumps for sure. Uh, when value underperforms, they, they tend to get hit, uh, but the long term looks very good. Uh, and these are just very dependable investors. And then lastly, let's look at a bond fund, Baird Aggregate Bond. What's to like there? Uh, well, again, the fees are really low, uh, but Baird is also just a sort of good manager of core funds, so uh, they don't get very fancy. They don't uh, do derivatives. They're not making currency bets. Uh, they're very much uh, doing your basic investment grade uh, bond selection, uh, corporate bonds, mortgages, treasuries. Uh, so when you have a great core strategy, very seasoned team there, and low fees, it's a great uh, 
combination to have, and, and I think great ballast. So when you have a, a, a sell-off in the equity market like we had in 2020, uh, this kind of core bond fund holds up really nicely and is a good ballast for your portfolio. Well, Russ, thank you for your time today and sharing some of these fantastic funds with us. We appreciate it. You're welcome. I'm Susan Jabinski. Thanks for tuning in. Next, Jason Kephart from Morningstar Research Services talks about Vanguard's huge role in the target date fund space. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. As the default option in many employer-sponsored retirement plans, target date strategies play important roles for many. We're therefore taking a deep dive into some of the largest target date providers. Today, we're diving into Vanguard's target date series with Jason Kephart. Jason is a strategist in Morningstar's multi-asset manager research team. Jason, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. So we're kicking off our series today talking about Vanguard because it's likely a very familiar name to many target date fund investors because it has so many target date assets. Tell us a little bit about just how big Vanguard is in this space. It's huge. In 2020, it became the first target date series to cross $1 trillion in net assets, which is just a mind-bogglingly large number. You really can't emphasize enough how many uh, retirement participants this series touches. So it's really just, it is kind of the, the benchmark for target date funds. Now, unlike some other target date series providers, Vanguard really only offers one series, right? Yep. Why is that? So Vanguard just truly believes in offering a low-cost solution that's going to get you broad exposure to global stocks and bonds, is simple, straightforward, easy to understand, and that's what they're they're delivering with this series. So what are some of the the pros of this series, and and how do we rate it? Um, So we rate it silver, um, which is our second highest rating. Um, We think it's absolutely a wonderful series for almost every investor. We do think there are a couple series that have a little bit more of an edge to them, but this series is absolutely wonderful just because it is so straightforward. It gets you exposure to U.S. and international stocks, um, broad market cap exposure, U.S. stocks or U.S. bonds and international bonds. Um, So it really just covers all the major bases. It's getting you close to the global market cap. So you really, if you believe in kind of um, efficient markets, this is kind of the series for you. And then lastly, are there any negatives, or maybe that's too strong of a word, maybe things that target date investors in this particular series should be aware of? There's some things I think you could like nitpick a little bit, but obviously I don't think there are any, any cause for concern. I would not recommend anyone kind of jump out of this series. But I think one of the things to keep in mind is they do have the largest exposure to international bonds. Um, so its it performance you know, is going to be driven a little bit more by what's happening to international bonds um, than other series. They do hedge it back to the dollar, which um, that means when the U.S. dollar is rallying, which typically happens when stocks fall, um, that tends to be a pretty good blast, um, good downside protection. I think the other thing to keep in mind is, you know, with its size at a trillion dollars, it's just kind of gargantuan. So it's hard to move a ship that size. So you, can, you wouldn't expect them to be too nimble when it comes to making um, changes. They have uh, done made changes over time, but they tend to be very slow and thoughtful, which I think is good. Um, they, but if there are fast-changing markets or you do get prolonged value growth rallies or interest rates rising, I don't think they would be moving as quick to adapt to those markets. Um, and that's kind of by design, right? They want the market cap exposure and they want that broad exposure. And they think you know, keeping costs low and staying invested over the long term um, is going to lead to the best outcome for retirees. And I think that, for the most part, is true. Well, Jason, thank you for your time today and for doing a little bit of a deep dive on Vanguard's Target Date series. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. 
Now, Jason fills us in on where Fidelity stands among other target date fund providers. Hi, I'm Susan Chavinsky with Morningstar. This is our second video in a series taking a deep dive into some of the more popular target date providers. Because target date strategies are the default option in many employer-sponsored retirement plans, they're key players in many investors' portfolios. Today, we're diving into Fidelity's target date series with Jason Kephart. Jason is a strategist in Morningstar's multi-asset manager research team. Jason, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So today we're taking a look at Fidelity. How does Fidelity rank in terms of assets among target date providers? So if you pull all of Fidelity's target date fund assets together, they're the second biggest. They've got about $365 billion in total assets, um, and that's about 13% of the overall market share. Um, But they do have a couple of different series, and what we're seeing is a big shift from Fidelity Freedom, which is what is kind of its flagship uh, series, was the first one to launch, to Fidelity Freedom Index. I think a lot of this is kind of um, being driven by fees. You know, fees are really driving a lot of flows in target date funds, and you're kind of seeing this shift within the house at Fidelity of a lot of assets moving from the higher cost Fidelity Freedom series to the lower cost Fidelity Freedom Index series. So let's talk about the different series available at the house um, that you referred to. Um, One's an index option, one's an active option, the Freedom one. Are there others and how are they different? They've also got a blend series, um, which is, as you'd expect, some active, some passive. The fees come kind of in between. And the idea with any blend series, right, is you want to keep costs low, but you don't want to give up all your potential upside from active management if you really believe in those active managers. And with blend series, you can be a little more picky on where you want that active exposure. So Fidelity Freedom, um, you know, it's all active, so you get um, the funds, you know, the firm's really well-known equity managers, and they're really, I don't know if they're, they're as well-known, they're bond managers, but we hold them in very high regard. We think they're uh, some of the industry's best. And in the blend series, you give up a little bit of the ec- active equity, but you're keeping a lot more of the, um, the a- active bond exposure. And that really keeps costs in check, but also gives you a lot of that um, potential upside. So what would you say, so the Freedom Series is still the largest series yeah. right now. So what would you say are the benefits there? Is it largely the, the strength of their active management at, at Fidelity? It is. That's, that's, the, that's the bet you're making kind of when you're picking that over Fidelity Freedom Index, which is essentially a bare-bones index-only version of it. Um, so you'd expect the performance to be driven mainly by the um, security selection of the underlying managers. And also within the Blend series and the Active series, the uh, target date managers will do some tactical bets. Um, you know, For a while, they were overweight like emerging market equities versus their glide path. Where in Fidelity Freedom Index, it's much more like a Vanguard where it's kind of a just you're getting cheap, broad exposure with um, minimal, like no tactical bets or anything. One thing we do like that they do in Fidelity Freedom Index is they uh, layer in a little long duration, um, b- uh, high quality bond exposure, which h- long duration, you know, is one of the best defenses against equity market sell-offs, like significant ones like we saw in the first quarter of 2020, fourth quarter of 2018, or a financial crisis type situation. That's your really, it's been proven to be really good insurance. Um, and we like that they kind of include that in that series. Whereas uh, other index-based series like Vanguard or BlackRock Lightpath Index don't get as nuanced on the bond mm. side. Okay. And then, um, so of these three series, the, the Freedom Series, the Index Series, and then the Blend Series, what are sort of the, the drawbacks of each of them or the negatives? And maybe that's too strong of a term, but maybe things that investors should be aware of. Yeah, I think with, um, with Fidelity Freedom, one of the, th- um, I think, challenges we've had in getting more confidence in the series is there's just a lot of overlap in the active equity uh, sleeves. They have a lot of managers with overlapping um, mandates and exposures. So it gets a little, you get a 
you lose a little bit of that active management there because there's just so many overlapping securities that kind of offset each other or kind of wash each other out. So I think that's been our one qualm with the Fidelity Freedom Series. It's also around 50 basis points, so it's kind of on the higher end of target date fund expenses. Fidelity Freedom Index we like a lot. Um, it's at around nine basis points for its cheapest share class. Um, and it, it's kind of like a Vanguard situation where you're going to get very um, broad exposures that um, should really help you grow your nest egg over time at a really low cost, which should be, and you know, very few surprises. Um, with Fidelity Blend, um, we don't cover that series yet, so, but it's on our radar. We're probably, you'll probably see us initiate coverage soon. Um, but that's one that's kind of, you kind of get almost the best of both worlds. Um, we do kind of tend to like these blend strategies because they do deliver some active management with very low costs, which I think does give you kind of an, ed an edge over the long run. Especially well, when you have bond managers like Fidelity's. Well, Jason, thank you so much for your time today and for the deep dive into Fidelity's Target Date series. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. And lastly this week, Jason evaluates T. Rowe Price's flagship Target Date Fund series. Hi, I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. This is our third video in a series taking a deep dive into some of the more popular Target Date providers. Target date series are the default option in many retirement plans and therefore play key roles in the portfolios of many investors. Today, we're diving into T. Rowe Price's target date series with Jason Kephart. Jason is a strategist in Morningstar's multi-asset manager research team. Hi, Jason. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. So how does T. Rowe Price rank in terms of assets when it comes to target date series providers? T. Rowe Price has long been the third largest um, provider. Um, we have seen some outflows from their mutual fund, but they've mostly been making them up for, up for those outflows in their collective investment trusts. And then we've also seen um, some more demand for their retirement blend series, um, which is a newer series um, in both the collective investment trusts, and they'll also be launching a mutual fund version of it um, later this summer. So as you alluded to, Jason, T. Rowe Price offers several different series, but the one that has the most assets in it is the retirement series. So let's start by talking about that one. Yeah, T. Rowe Price Retirement is their flagship target date fund series. It's overseen by what we consider one of the top teams um, for asset allocation research and execution in the industry. Um, it's currently led by Wyatt Lee, um, who's a long-term industry ve uh, veteran. Um, and we think they're just very thoughtful about the way they construct portfolios. They've recently revisited the glide path and found they want a little bit more equity further away from retirement when you have uh, time is really on your side. And what we've seen is that um, investors in target date funds further from retirement tend to be a little bit less um, less scared off by volatility, like you would see mm -hmm. maybe closer to retirement when your nest egg sure. is that going to be larger. So it seems like you could actually take a little bit more risk there. And their research kind of uh, proves that out a little bit. So we were pretty confident in um, that team overseeing it. And so it's also including a collection of, you know, T. Rowe Price's really well-regarded active equity funds, active bond funds. So really what's going to drive this series is that stock selection and bond selection. And they're among one of the best um, stock selecting firms, I think, in the industry. So are there any negatives or things that investors in this particular series should be aware of? I think you have to be prepared for a little bit more volatility, um, not just because the glide path tends to be a little bit more on the aggressive side. The bond fund, the bond side tends to be a little bit more adventurous. Tiro Price New Income is kind of the core bond fund, or plays the role of a core bond fund in the series, and it had a pretty rough 2020, um, but it did bounce back when the market bounced back. But I think if you can stomach that kind of, um, those kind of shortfalls over short time periods, the long-term outlook for the series is very, very strong. 
And then we also cover the T. Rowe Price Retirement Blend Series. Tell us a little bit about what exactly it's blending and, and what we think of that one. Yeah, so that's one we cover in the Collective Investment Trust right now, but it's also coming to mutual funds um, later this summer. And it's basically their, their um, attempt at bringing a lower cost version of their series to market. So you add in some index funds like an S&P 500 index fund um, to get some beta exposures or some you know, general market exposure, which is going to really bring costs down. The, the blend series costs around 20 basis points, 2025, whereas the all active series is around 50. And what we've seen is that um, the litigation risk for plan sponsors um, owning mostly active target date funds with higher fees has been very high lately. Mm. So that's been a kind of a headwind, I think, for a series like T. Rowe Price that over the last 10 years, no matter which way you cut it, they're either the first or second or third best performing target date fund, but their mutual funds have still seen pretty steady outflows since like 2017, mm -hmm. which we mainly attribute to that litigation risk. So this is kind of, um, I think, a way to meet the market demand for lower costs, but you're still getting that like T. Rowe Price security selection that is really going to help drive returns. And that they're known for. Yeah. Well, Jason, thank you so much for your time today and this deep dive into T. Rowe Price's target date series. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services, LLC, is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.